We are jumping in today to Ezra chapter 3. That's what we are preaching through. And if you are new, you might not have any clue where we are and what's going on. Don't worry, you'll be caught up soon. But it's in the Old Testament, the first sort of three quarters of of the Bible. Um, And I'm going to kick off by asking us the question that I think probably everyone was um, thinking when you walked in here this evening. Um, And it's not, what's so amazing about Jesus? It is, who should direct the next James Bond movie? Who should direct the next James Bond movie? Very pertinent question, because right now, uh, if you don't know this, the Bond franchise is at a point in time where they need to reboot. They need to recast. Daniel Craig is done. You'll definitely know why he's done if you watch the last movie. And um, if you know anything about James Bond movies, um, they've, they've had to do this from time to time. The actors get old. Some of them get really old, and things get really awkward, and they need to reboot the whole thing. And so it's not the first time it's happening. But um, I want to tell you, I know exactly who they should get, and the producers should listen to me. And if they listen to this recording, which I hope you are, Barbara and Michael, listen up. You need to get Martin Campbell to come and direct the next James Bond movie. Martin Campbell, he's a New Zealand filmmaker. I doubt many of you would have heard of him. And to be honest, if you looked at his filmography on IMDb, you'd be like, this guy makes some quite average movies. To be honest, um, I think I've seen a couple of these. I haven't heard of most of them. Um, the guy just seems bang average. However, two of his movies are previous James Bond movies. And those two previous James Bond movies were both reboots. The one was Daniel Craig's reboot, 2006's Casino Royale. The other was Pierce Brosnan's reboot, GoldenEye, in 1995. And both those movies are pretty much regarded as two of the greatest James Bond movies. Critical smashes, commercial smashes, amazing stuff. He's the guy to get. And I happened to be watching this YouTube review last night, and um, they actually threw up this picture here, which is um, Martin Campbell as Moses, um, with the Ten Commandments in his hand, the two pillars, the two testaments, Casino Royale and Goldeneye. And these guys literally were speaking of him as, as the Messiah. Um, anyways, um, I just thought that was funny. Some of you might think that's very blasphemous. I don't know. But um, I want to put to you that I think Goldeneye is the bigger achievement. Everyone loves Casino Royale. But Goldeneye is the bigger achievement because the Bond franchise in the early 90s was at its darkest, lowest point. They've been making a movie, pretty much churning one out for every two years, and now it had been over half a decade, and there hadn't been a James Bond movie. In fact, the previous James Bond movie was 1989's License to Kill. There's the poster. It was pretty much like a critical, more or less, flop, an absolute commercial flop, um, and they didn't manage to get a third Timothy Dalton movie up and running for a bunch of reasons after this. Um, Plus, many people at the time were saying, hey, you know what? The Berlin Wall has fallen since 1989. The Cold War is over, um, and we don't need James Bond. Russia is no longer a threat, they told us. All right? But the producers said, the producers said, guys, we're going to reboot this thing. We are going to reboot this thing. And they had to get in a room, and they had to figure out what are the ingredients, what are the priorities that we need to get in place to make a reboot work. One of them was the right director. You need the right person helming the ship and steering things. They said, we need to get back to the central things, right? The very essence, the core of what made this franchise great in the first place. We need to go back to what the people first said yes to, right? In the glory days when this franchise was making tons of money. However, we must move forward. Yes, the Cold War is over. He's not going to be a Cold War spy anymore. We need to, you know, stand on the foundations of the past, but build towards what they envisioned at that time as a glorious future. And seriously, people thought there was not going to be any more James Bond. And yet... Drumroll, please. Goldeneye came out, and it was a resounding success. I think because Pierce Brosnan's probably one of the best-looking human beings who's ever existed. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I think I think he really is way better looking than the last guy. It was a resounding success, and here we still have money being churned around with James Bond today. 
Has your life ever needed a reboot? Has your life ever needed a restart, a do-over? Maybe you're here today. I don't know who you are, Christian, non-Christian, but you're here today and you're just like, I need a second chance at life. I need a second chance at life. Maybe you're a Christ follower and you feel like, hey, you've just drifted off course. You've just drifted off course. You've lost your first love. You've gotten entangled in things. um, And you just feel so far from where you think you should be and what you should be up to and experiencing in life. Maybe you want to see, you're hearing about the Asbury revivals in, in the U.S. And you're like, I want to see and experience the presence and the purposes and the power of God flowing in and through my life and in and through this community and maybe in ways that it, it never has before. Maybe you're not a Christ follower. You're visiting us tonight. We're so stoked to be able to have you. Welcome. Maybe you're here um, and for whatever reason, you are looking for a reboot. You're looking for a fresh start in life. I don't know what, what the reasons could be. There's, there's, there's tons we could go through. Maybe you've got a whole bunch of guilt and shame for stuff in your life that you, you just can't seem to deal with. Maybe you feel you've hit a, a bit of a dead end when it comes to purpose and meaning in this life. And you, you kind of find yourself asking the question, hey, is there more to life than this? Is there more to life than this? Maybe you've just found yourself in a place in life that you never wanted to be in, never thought you would be in, but for whatever reason, you find yourself there today, this year, and it sucks. It's a dark place for whatever reason. We've come to the right place because the God of the Bible is the God of second chances. He is the God of the reboot, I want to tell you. And today, um, as we go through Ezra chapter 3, we're investigating what I'm calling the anatomy of a reboot. The anatomy of a reboot. It's the story of a people who get a fresh start at life, thanks to God. And, and we're going to look at what, what that fresh start looks like in its, in its foundational phase, right at the beginning. What were the things that these people gave themselves to? And we're going to look at three priorities that they gave themselves to. And I kind of realize it's probably three priorities plus some next things there. Two priorities plus some things they gave themselves to. But for the sake of it, we're going to call it three priorities. And we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at what it meant for them in, 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 in their point in history, in their moment in history. And then towards the end, the last sort of third or quarter, we're just going to look at, well, what does it mean? What do these three priorities look like? In our moment in history, for us as people who are looking for a do-over in life, a, a reboot in life. And so, let's jump in, their moment in history. Where are we in the story? Some of you are brand new tonight. Um, it's about 530-something BC, and the people of God, the people of Israel at that time, had lost their way. They drifted from Him. They had sinned against Him. They would fallen into darkness, and they, they paid the price. By having their country decimated and being dragged off into exile, into captivity in a foreign nation called Babylon. Um, But God had always promised that He was going to bring His people back. He was going to preserve a remnant, a small group of them, and He was going to give them a do-over. He was going to give them a reboot. And what happened in the first week is the new ruler comes into power. His name's Cyrus, and he gives permission for a whole bunch of these Israelites to return home, to go back to their land and to rebuild their temple. And the temple is a big deal. It was a big deal. It was this, the absolute center of the religious, political, social life. It was like the White House and the church and something else all combined. It was a big, big deal. And the second chance for them has arrived. And last week we explored all the, all the various sort of individuals who put their hands up to, to go back in, in that first wave. A whole bunch of courageous people. And today, as I said, we're going to look at the beginning of this reboot, the beginning of this rebuilding project of the temple. What did these people prioritize? And I suppose more importantly, why did they prioritize these things? And so let's kick off. We're going to read, uh, we'll start off with just the first three verses of chapter 3. 
When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel, who were back now, were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, despite their fear of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to Yahweh, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now remember this. This whole reboot fraud project, um, if you've been tracking with us, it started with God, actually, right at the beginning. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to allow these people to go back. He stirred the hearts of the people to say yes to go. And that's huge because the starting point of any personal renewal, any corporate renewal that's happening in the world, does not start with you or I. It starts with God, and it starts with who He is, and what He's done, and what He's doing. And that's huge. That's a, that is a foundational thing. And so we see here, He stirs up a people who gather now as one man. They gather as one man in terms of being set up as, as the people of God for revivals, for blessing, to see the power of God flow. We need a sense of unity. We need a sense of unity. Division amongst God's people is what had really costed the whole team 300 years before this. The whole kingdom divided into two and ultimately all got wrecked and destroyed. But where there is unity, things can happen. Things can happen. God loves unity amongst His people. And so together as one, we've got the people and the leaders. We've got Jeshua the priest, and we've got Zerubbabel, who is kind of the, the political governor, but he's also a descendant of King David, the great king of Israel. And they gather, and here's the first thing that they prioritize that we see in, in, in the first little text here. It's this. Atonement for sin. Atonement for sin is the first thing that they prioritize. See, what's striking here is that these guys were sent to go rebuild the temple, right? This whole massive building, this massive deal. And yet the first thing they start off with is actually this altar for offering burnt sacrifices, which, which actually is not technically part of the temple. It's also not in the temple. It's outside the temple, in the temple courtyard. That's where this thing lived. It's kind of like, it's interesting, it, it just as an analogy, it's kind of like setting up your kitchen and unpacking your crockery and plugging in your stove and putting things in your fridge and then saying, cool, now let's start building this house. Let's, let's put the walls in now. Let's get a roof on because the kitchen's set up. The kitchen's good to go. That's kind of what was happening here. Could have felt a bit strange. So these people, they came and they returned to what's arguably the most sacred site, right? They came back and in the, in the rubble and in the ruins of of an old way of life, they, they found the place where the original altar would have, would have sat and they set up a new one. And they did it despite fear being on them because of the surrounding peoples. A whole bunch of peoples who perhaps didn't know and love the, the God of the Bible, but also a whole bunch of people who had stayed behind and had probably gotten lost their way, had forsaken God, a whole bunch of interesting stuff. They were afraid of them, but they went ahead. They wanted to build the altar because on the altar, these burnt offerings could be made, burnt offerings of animals that would atone for their sin that separates them from Yahweh, their God. It's the, name of, it's the name of their God. And these were ongoing blood sacrifices that were meant to remind them, actually, that sin needs to be dealt with. Sin needs to be dealt with. At its root, sin, which you could define as not loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. Sin is, is what sent humanity as a whole into exile, away from God's presence. Still the same situation today. And sin is what sent the Israelites into exile, into Babylon. 
So despite the fear of the people around them, they recognize this is a priority. This is a priority. They recognize, hey, rather than needing to fear a whole bunch of sinful people out there, we need to fear a holy God. We need to fear our holy God. Atonement. It's when something happens that makes two parties who are at odds with each other at one with each other. At one meant it's in, it's in the word. And any reboots, any, any second chance in life for anyone ultimately has to start here. Has to start here. By recognizing in, in the ruins and the rubble of, of life, your life, life around you, that the ultimate problem, the ultimate cause of all other problems in this world is the sin that separates human beings from God. Everything goes off course from there. And that's why they prioritize. And you might ask, where do they get these ideas? Do they just think, hey, this sounds like a good idea? No. This stuff was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They based it on their Torah, their law, their, their scriptures, which leads us into the second thing that they prioritize, which very much overlaps with the first, and you'll see just now will overlap with the third. We're just going to read um, almost the rest of the, the chapter now, verses 4 to 11. And so they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of Yahweh, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to Yahweh. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to Yahweh. But the foundation of the temple of Yahweh was not yet laid. <coughs> whole point is, they've done all this and they still haven't started the temple. That's how you know they prioritize these things. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josedak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites who read all about them last week and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of Yahweh. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah together, supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of Yahweh, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise Yahweh according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid. It's a beautiful passage, and... Here's the second thing that I want you to notice that they prioritize right off the bat. Is, it's worship according to the word. Worship according to the word. Worship is not simply singing. Worship is, is what you do every single day of your life with every single thing that you do. That's, that's kind of the Bible's definition of worship. Everyone is a worshiper according to the Bible. It's just a question of who or what you will worship. You worship what you devote your affection and your attention and your time and your energy and your resources towards. And you worship what you trust and what you let direct the course of your life. 
And so for these returning exiles, they realize, hey man, we've got a second shot. We've got a second shot at life as the people of God. And we don't want to waste it. We don't want to waste it. Man, ignoring God, not trusting Him, doing our own thing, that's what resulted in exile in the first place, right? And so instead of each of them doing what was right in their own eyes, each of them acting on their own impulses and every desire that might arise in them, they realized, hey, they needed to reorient their whole lives around God and what He says. And that's how you worship God. That's how you worship God. And so a few things you'll notice about their worship from this passage, they base everything on Scripture. They base everything on Scripture, okay? Worshiping God looks like obeying Him, doing life on His terms, trusting His definitions of, of right and wrong, and essentially not setting yourself or someone else up as the ultimate authority in life. It's submitting to God as the ultimate authority, the one who's created and who sustains the universe, who's sustaining your heartbeat right now. When He says, I'm no longer going to sustain it, it'll stop being sustained. He is in absolute control. So we worship Him by basing everything on what He has said. You'll see they reorient their, their calendar around God. Okay, you, We read there about all these daily rhythms and these sacrifices and these offerings and these festivals and the yearly rhythms. So we see they kick off here, right? And it's the seventh month. It's the seventh month in their calendar. Um, and there's a whole bunch of celebrations that actually typically kick off in, in, in the calendar on that month. Um, but they get the burnt offerings up and running according to what was written in the scriptures of Moses. Over and over again it says that, right? And then there's these free will offerings that are mentioned. Free will offerings. And, and these things, they're not sacrifices, burnt offerings that are made to atone for sin. No, these are spontaneous offerings, burnt offerings that are put on the altar. But they're given over and above simply to express love and pleasure and delight towards God. It's just a way of worshipping God as an overflow and a gratitude of everything that He's done. And then you'll see there's, there's, there's sort of several big events, as I say, that were meant to happen here. They mentioned a couple of them. One of the biggest ones, which is not mentioned here, which should have happened in the seventh month, is the Day of Atonement. And they will get to celebrating it later um, to a degree. But um, commentators say that perhaps couldn't happen because these guys no longer possess something very important. The Ark of the Covenant was this wooden box that contained the, the like Martin Campbell had, the, the what do you call it, the... the, the, the Tablets of stone, they would have been inside there, although the actual ones, not his ones. And inside this box dwelt the very manifest presence and glory of God. And it was a huge part of the, of the Day of Atonement. But they don't have that anymore. What is recorded, though, what they do celebrate, what's highlighted here, is the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. They, they prioritize it, I think, because it highlights the idea of a new beginning. All right? And that God is with them. And the Feast of Booths was celebrated to commemorate um, thousand years previously when God had rescued them from slavery out of Egypt. And they, they would have traipsed through the desert on their way to their promised land. And, and basically the festival was everyone sort of camped in tents. It was kind of like, I don't, I don't know, that end of year party, you know, where everyone's out camping in tents, plate rage, um, just like a, a holy version of it. Um, and they celebrated being freed from captivity, but also they celebrated the fact that God was with them even though they hadn't reached their homeland yet hadn't reached the final destination. You can see these exiles coming back to Jerusalem would have said, geez, we, we can sense something of, of our story in this. And so they, they celebrated that. They bring their best. Okay, when it comes to the start of the rebuilding of the temple here, they know they need the best wood, right? And if you've, if you've read the Psalms quite a lot, you'll be someone who knows 
where the best wood in the ancient world is located. It's located in Lebanon. For whatever reason, so many of the Psalms tell us about the cedars of Lebanon, the great trees of Lebanon. It's basically that part on the Catan board where all the wood is. And if you want to get it, you've got to trade all your good stuff to get that good stuff. And that's basically what they did here, right? They brought it down from the Tyrians and the Sidonians. They brought it down to the port in Joppa, and then they could obviously get it to Jerusalem from there. They give God their best. It's the best wood in the whole world. And they sacrifice their best stuff in order to get it. And that's a principle throughout Scripture when it comes to worship. God's people give God their best because He is worship, He's worth it. When the people would have worshipped in the Old Testament, bringing their tithes and their offerings to the temple and the priests, okay, they would have given from the, the first portion of their flocks or the first portion of their harvest. They didn't wait to just give what was left in the peanuts at the end of the season. They gave God their best up front because they recognized His worthiness, which is perhaps something that their forefathers had forgotten. They root themselves in godly wisdom traditions of the past. All right? This might not be abundantly clear to you, but the sort of the specifications, um, how they procured the wood from Lebanon, the way the work is carried out with the oversight of the Levites of a certain age, even the fact that the work starts in the second month of the year, all of this is based on what Solomon did when he started building the first temple. It's almost word for word to that account. When they burst out in singing towards the end here, okay, they pattern um, things on, on, on what, what happened at Solomon's temple when they burst out singing. They, they, they sang songs of, 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 of David, even down to the exact song that was sung when Solomon unveiled the temple. They sang that God is good, that God is faithful to His covenant people. He makes good on His promises. And so they go back, they go back to the Scriptures, they go back to their forefathers here. They don't necessarily obey things that were prescribed for them to do, but they recognize the beauty and the wisdom and, 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 and the lives that have gone before them, and they get into that slipstream. They emulate something that they think is worthy of adopting in their generation and in their lives for the glory of God. And lastly, they do actually also worship with music and song. Um, they do worship with music and song. Worship is, is not only music and song, but it is certainly a huge part of it. And they go for it, right? They gather together. They sing as a group. It's very orderly. The band's all set up, like quite legit with all the different instruments, um, which has always been a, a pattern for God's people. Orderly worship together, playing your part. And the worship is, is full of truth about who God is, what He's done, right? He's going to keep His promises to Israel. It's good doctrine and they praise God for who He is. It's full of gratitude. It's full of thanksgiving. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And they praise God for what He's doing now in their time, in their moment, with this awesome thing of, of kicking, kickstarting the temple again. And it's all very much linked to the last priority, although again, I think there's a lot of overlap. And the last priority is this. I'm also going to pull it from the text we've read. But as I said, it could be the next steps, perhaps. It's their participation and rejoicing in the current work of God. Okay, the reboot project of the temple was not simply to restore some sort of former glory, right? Ah, the days, the days gone by of Solomon, those great days. Let's just honor those days. No, it was for them to play their part in history in the ongoing purposes of God. That's what was happening here. You might have heard the cheesy line, human history is his story. And they recognize that. They recognize they've just got a small chapter in God's story. And they give themselves to what God has called them to in their generation. They're saying yes to God despite the fear that's around them. 
And you'll see they're not alone. They're not doing it in isolation. They're doing it together as the people. There's leaders. There's followers. Everyone's playing their part. And we read an amazing thing here. That the foundations of the temple of the God of the universe were laid. And laid amidst the broken walls and the ruined city of Jerusalem. It's an amazing contrast, right? Hope and promise in the midst of chaos and brokenness. And they recognize this is worthy of rejoicing in God. This is worthy of that. Why? Because God is not dead. He's kept His promises. God is with us. God is for us. He's amazing. He is moving. And we have been given our lives back. Yes, this is a beautiful thing. They say, let's go. But the story doesn't end there. We have two more verses to read. And this is what we read. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard from far away. It's a very curious ending. Okay? Amidst all this joy and all this good stuff, a couple of the old guys were weeping. And you've got to ask the question, why? Because this is how the story ends. Why? And the author doesn't actually explicitly tell us. We've just, we've just read it, right? He doesn't tell us. But I think he's assuming that we might know something else as people of God who've, who've read the Scriptures. And it's this. Is that the unveiling of, of the foundation of the second temple here and the worship that, that follows is almost identical word for word to the story of the completion of the first temple that's recorded in Second Chronicles. All right? Now in that story, story, it's almost literally, you put them up, it's word for word pretty much, except there's one glaring difference. And it's this. In that story, in the first temple, the Ark of the Covenant that I mentioned earlier was placed in the holiest of holies in the midst of the temple and the glory of the Lord descended upon the temple and rested upon it in this glory cloud. But as we mentioned just now, the Ark of the Covenant's been lost. It's gone. The people who had seen and knew the glory of, of God at the first temple and saw everything that happened, they knew this, this just is not the same. This is not the same. And you'll read later in Ezra, when this temple is completed, the glory of the Lord does not descend. It doesn't come down in manifest power in a cloud of glory. And the prophet Haggai comments again there that the old guys wept once again. So they wept when the foundation was being laid and they wept again when the thing was completed. They were real killjoys to have around at this project. Um, but they just thought to themselves, this is not what it was. This is not what it was. You see, those old men who were weeping, I don't think they could quite see perhaps what God was doing in their time, what, what He was doing then in their moment and, and where that was leading, where God was pushing human history, where things were heading towards. And I think what's great is that in, in the story, where the story starts, right, the people start laying the foundations and they're afraid of the surrounding peoples. The story ends with a great shout and noise being heard far away. And you've got to ask, who heard the sound far away? It was those surrounding peoples that they were afraid of. They were afraid of all these people, but now they don't really care. They are worshipping God so loud. Some of them are weeping to the point where people take notice. It draws their attention. In the next story, you're going to, we're going to see that it does draw attention. 
And so what was God doing in their moment here? Okay? Where was this leading? Where was this leading? This temple that, that, that they were building, yeah, it, 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 it wasn't as glorious as the previous one, but it has a part in God's unfolding plan leading up to Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the person of whom the temple was always a shadow. It was always pointing towards Jesus coming in the flesh. The whole system, the priests, the building, the sacrifices, the presence of God dwelling on the earth, all of it foreshadowed Jesus. And just consider with me what perhaps those guys who were weeping couldn't see that you and I now can. Okay? We read here about Moses, the man of God. He wrote down his word, the word of God. People followed it. Jesus is said to be the word of God. He is the word of God. And he's not just a man of God. He is the God-man. He is God incarnate, God in the flesh with us. And if we say anything about Jesus, if we've got one opportunity to say one thing about Jesus, what's the central, most important thing that we can say about Jesus Christ? It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you guys about the good news, the gospel that I've brought, that I've been preaching. And he says, for I delivered to you guys, Corinthians, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures. So instead of repeated sacrifices like these guys at the, at the altar were having to do, no, Hebrews says Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus on the cross made the ultimate offering for sin, for atonement. Then sacrificed some other animal. He was the Lamb of God who was sacrificed on our behalf. But also before he died, Jesus lived an entire life of worship according to the scriptures, right? I mean, just consider this. He was born according to prophecy. He didn't seem to have maybe much, too much control of that. But still, his birth was in accordance with the scriptures. And every moment... From then also was. He attended the festivals. He followed the Torah. He fought sin by telling Satan, no, it is written in the word of God. He was the perfect Jew according to the law of Moses before God. Which is why his atoning death on our behalf is not just a cancellation of our sin. It's also an opportunity by which, by faith, we can receive his perfect standing before God as one who is blameless before the law. Jesus Christ gave his best. He gave his best for the glory of God and, and for our joy. Those things are not separate. He gave it all down to the very last drop of his blood. When out of love for you and I, he laid down his life for us, right? And get this. You might not know this, but Jesus, it's very pertinent to today. Jesus, in accordance with the scriptures, came to the temple. Might not sound like much, but... Um, he came to this temple from Ezra, the sort of not-so-glorious temple. Okay? Prophecy had dictated that one day, towards the culmination of, of, you know, towards the end of the age, when the new age is starting to come, Yahweh himself, in person, will come to his temple. And the gospel writers tell us Jesus fulfilled that when he rocked up at the temple as a boy. It might not be Solomon's temple, sure. But man, does it play its part in human history, in God's story. And when Jesus died... Right, much like the temple, foundations being laid, people wept. People wept. At the same time, there was an earthquake actually wrecking the temple not far away, opening up the holiest of holies. 
And those who were weeping when Jesus died, much like the old men weeping in Ezra, they couldn't quite see the full picture perhaps, but three days later, their mourning turned into joy because they realized, hey, Jesus is back. He's back from the grave. He's defeated death. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. He's ushering in His kingdom. He's growing His church. He's waiting for the time when all His enemies will be a footstool for His feet. They finally saw what, what maybe they couldn't quite see in the moment when the Son of God is getting crucified. But no, the new age has begun. The age of the Spirit is here. And it's an age where there's actually a new temple under construction. Right? Not of stone, but of people. You and I. And as the cornerstone of that foundation is Christ. He's the foundation of every single thing we do as the people of God. So what does this mean for our moment in history? This is where we're going to land for the next few minutes. What does all this mean for you personally? What does it mean for us corporately as a people? Let's just think about those priorities. Priority number one for the reboots. Atonement for sin. If you are not a Christian yet, if you are here tonight, you are visiting. We are so glad that you are here. But whether you know it or not, I'm here to tell you on behalf of God, your life needs a reboot. Your life needs a reboot. You need to be restored to your Creator. You need to begin life once again with His presence for His purposes that will result in your joy. You need a reboot. And it starts with faith in Jesus' sacrifice to atone for your sin. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can make right with God. But Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf can. And you need to trust in Him. That's your first step tonight if you're here. That is your first step for your reboot. For the rest of us, we're Christ followers. We've said yes to Jesus, okay? But in case you haven't noticed, you still sin, as do I. It's very evident in the first three and a half weeks of having a newborn. You still sin. And we need to still confess, confess and repent of sin. Not for the big reboot of saying yes to Jesus for the first time, no. But for any mini reboot in our lives. We need to come back to Jesus, okay? Any time in life where, where either our sin or someone else's sin or whatever, there's a distraction, we're just not where we should be, we need to go back to the center, to the main thing, to the essence of everything, which is Christ and Him crucified. That's the good news. That's the gospel. No matter what you've done, we can run back and we can plead the blood of Jesus and He can wash us clean. He can restore the experience of God our Father. He can cleanse our consciences. Priority number one, atonement for sin. We, we go back there. Priority number two, worship according to the word. For those of us who are Christ followers now, I guess the invitation is don't throw away the new life that you have received. Live it. Live it. Okay? You are free from sin. You are free from sin. That's why Paul says, not, so if you're free from sin, don't go back into bondage and sin. That, that's like these, these, these Jews here saying, you know what? Actually, we're free. We get it. But we're going back to Babylon. No. Don't do that. Paul in Romans, 1, right, Romans 12, 1 writes this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because He's a merciful God. He's good. He's kind. To present your bodies, your whole being, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Living lives of obedience according to God's word is kind of like our free will offering. It's like our free will offering. We don't, we don't obey God to get forgiveness. That's done. We obey God because we want to worship Him. Okay? We don't... 
We're not, we're not laying our lives down as sacrifices to atone for sin. No, we're doing it to express our love for the one who has atoned for our sin. That's why we do it. And so what this means is, if all of life is worship and we're meant to lay down our, our whole beings as living sacrifices, everything you come into contact with and every opportunity is a potential altar for you to make a worship sacrifice to God. So the dating app on your phone, or the bed that you will sleep in, maybe with someone, maybe with someone who's not just boss, it's going to be an altar that you're going to either make a sacrifice to God or a sacrifice to someone or something else. EFTs, your Google Calendar, all of these are altars on which you and I can worship God and make beautiful offerings to Him. We make our decisions based on His Word, believing that He is good, He knows best, because He does. And out of gratitude and thanksgiving, we then bring our best to Him. Every day, walking in the wisdom of those who've gone ahead of us in the journey, we gather regularly as God's people to worship together, to sing in song, like they did, together as one. Here's the third and final priority. Participation and rejoicing in the current work of God. In the current work of God, right? Let me say this. I think joy is meant to be the result of gospel-centered obedience and, and participation in, in the kingdom purposes. It's all meant to result in our joy. God's not after your misery. God is after your joy as we follow Jesus, who's the ultimate leader. Jesus is the ultimate one whose substream we want to get in, whose life we want to base things on, okay? okay? Moses was the great prophet. Turns out Jesus is the greater prophet. Jeshua was the priest. Well, turns out Jeshua, translated into Greek, is Jesus. And we've got the greater Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Zerubbabel, he may have been descended of David, so was Jesus. He's the ultimate king of David, who is ruling and reigning on David's throne forever. He is leading us as his people into building his temple, now his church. That's what you and I are a part of in our day and age. And so if God has given you a second chance, there's going to be times for weeping. There will be times for weeping in this life. I think it's, it's 100% right to be grieved by sin in your life. To be grieved by the effect of others' sin on your life. But don't live there. Don't live there. God is after your joy. And He's after your joy being heard by the peoples around. Right? Like the end of the story. And so your second chance, whatever it might be, whatever your second chance looks like right now, it might start small. It might be filled with sort of hangovers from the previous life. Okay, there are going to be traumas. That no matter if you get a reboot today, you're not necessarily going to be able to unlive them. There's going to be people that you're not going to be able to bring back. But don't despise the day of small beginnings. Don't despise it. Each little conversation, each little thing that you give yourself to, each little victory will compound and it will find its place in the forward movement of God's kingdom purposes as He builds His church. So we need all of this. We need the wisdom of the past to make us head towards the future. Let me just end with this line. God's purposes in giving anyone a reboot, whoever you are here today, is not just to fix a few things in your life. It is for God's glory and our unashamed joy to be heard by the world around us. That's the goal. 